Hey, it's Anthony Fury. Welcome to the latest episode of Full Comet. It has been a crazy year and a half for the economy. There have been a lot of people left behind and a lot of people who made off like bandits. The stock market plunged, then it soared, then real estate soared, again. Interest rates are low, but inflation is not. The price of staple goods like meat is soaring. Meanwhile, governments wanna have a say in how we transition and how we reset. How's that gonna work out? Are things just going to get crazier? How should you navigate the months ahead? Martin Pelletier joins us now, the perfect person for this conversation. He's a portfolio manager with TriVest Wealth and a regular columnist in the Financial Post. Hey, Martin, thanks for stopping by. You betcha. Yeah, great to have you. But, uh, you know, you can tell from the opening there, I've, I've pretty much got it all wide open basically to ask you, what on earth is going on with the economy these days? And I'm sure you have a lot of people calling you up and pretty much asking you that very question. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty out there, especially uh, given the ramp up in the variant with COVID and stock markets that seem to be defying gravity uh, thanks to uh, massive liquidity being injected by central banks. So, you know, younger investors haven't really, um, you know, have a, a good sense of a, a prolonged downturn as uh, the, what happened last year certainly came back in, in, in a quite quick fashion. And, and then you have uh, older folks like myself, Gen X or baby boomers, who have been more conservative with their balance sheets, wondering what the heck's going on with governments and, uh, and households uh, leveraging up again. And so there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And, and, and so you're going to have to you know, reposition portfolios, I think, to reflect that uncertainty. And, and sitting in cash certainly isn't going to do, do you any good, especially if you believe the inflation narrative as it's going to eat away at your savings. You're not going to be able to meet uh, sort of your goals and objectives for retirement. Yeah, well, let's talk about that for a bit, about inflation, because that was an issue that uh, it materialized during the campaign trail. A lot of the political leaders talking about the cost of living, something that, especially for people just getting by, it's making life all that much more difficult. What's fueling this? Because I, I can't remember the exact stat, but it was the highest year over year that we've seen, you know, I don't know, 10 years or something like that. I mean, we're, we're looking at pretty high numbers now in a lot of uh, sort of basic staples of, of consumer life. Yeah, and so... You know, we have a, a cost of living crisis in Canada, that's for sure. Um, there's a couple of factors uh, behind that. And, and it, is, is, it is happening globally, not just here. And I think it's getting compounded here, given what's happening in our housing market. So the first thing you have is you have, because of the Bank of Canada uh, making uh, uh, credit readily available through uh, printing money and providing that liquidity through to the banks and keeping interest rates low, as a result, you're seeing, uh, I read this morning that people in Canada with fourth mortgages outpace those with first-time home buyers in Whoa. regards to buying, buying homes. Fourth uh, mortgages. What, 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 break that down for me. What, what, what does that situation entail? What sort, of, uh, <laughs> what sort of stress would they be under in terms of that? That's a lot. Well, it just goes to show that people are leveraging and going all in on housing speculation. Right. Um, and, and that's creating a real problem for first-time homebuyers who want to set roots, especially in, in cities like Vancouver and, and the GTA. It's basically impossible to buy, buy a home, a starter home uh, for young people. And that, that's a problem. I also read this morning that um, in Toronto, the city itself has more cranes combined, uh, more, sorry, more cranes than New York, Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, Seattle, San Francisco, and Washington all combined wow and so yeah and so we have 
a massive housing speculation being driven by um, there are foreign buyers, but uh, Canadians themselves who are leveraging up and and buying real estate for the sake of, of, of it going higher. And you can't blame them because if you're looking at the Canadian stock market over the last 10 years um, in U.S. dollar terms, um, it's only posted an annual return of 3.7%. And so Canadian investors are, well, you know, I'm going to make 20% a year in my housing. I'll just keep doing that and keep leveraging to do so. And, and that's creating a, a cost of living crisis in this country and that's driving inflationary pressures in this country. And then there's uh, things that are happening globally um, that, that are starting to hit, take root here. You've got energy crisis that's developing, a supply chain crisis, and an evolving uh, labor crisis. So you throw that all together and you're starting to see inflation, uh, inflationary pressures that are not being reflected by central bankers in, in their stats that they're providing to uh, consumers where you know, we're seeing it on boots in the ground. Yeah, I've certainly had people email me. I've seen people tweeting at me saying, yeah, I'm going out doing grocery shopping for a family of four or five or what have you. And it used to cost me, you know, whatever the bill was, I'd be paying $200. Now I'm buying the same stuff and it's costing yeah. me 240 250 or what have you. They're seeing that. And Martin, I understand there's a bit of a debate among people who are, are just sort of watching the economy, various economists, and they're saying, oh, this is just a temporary thing. Others saying, no, this is caked into the system now for quite some time. For those people who are concerned, I mean, Martin, would you tell them, well, you know, don't worry, just ride the wave and, and things are going to be okay uh, coming up sooner. It's like, no, this is actually a reality and this is a challenge that, that, that may get worse. What, what do you think is transpiring here? Yeah, this is a real threat. This is something that has to be taken seriously. I think this is the biggest threat since the 2008 financial crisis. And central bankers and governments don't want you to realize it because it will hijack um, an agenda, I believe, is directed towards climate change. Now, I'm a believer huh. in climate change, 100%, um, but it's an all or nothing strategy that's directing trillions of dollars of capital towards um, converting systems towards renewables and infrastructure, which again, I agree with, but it, that has resulted in a mass underinvestment in, in supply uh, of investment in supply on oil and gas, for example, which is 85% of the supplies, 85% of the global energy needs. At the same time, you have COVID uh, disrupting supply chain channels and uh, resulting in freight costs and container shortages, some of which will be permanent. And then you have labor um, that is demanding increases. And you know, I also read the other day on Twitter that McDonald's is paying 17 dollars an hour, which is good. Huh. I mean, we need to see higher higher wages, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's in itself, all of those combined are are going to drive inflation higher, going to make it uh, much harder for families to get by. And at the same time, governments in power are saying, that's not a problem. Uh, we're going to keep spending all this money on climate change, and it's going to only exasperate and create more troubles in the energy space. And you're seeing that happen in, in Europe right now and Asia, where they're fighting over spot LNG and, mm. and and gas prices are $27 and MMBTU compared to $3 here in Alberta and 5 to $6 in the US. And their Citibank came out saying that it could go to $100 and MMBTU. And if you apply that to, let's say I took that for fun and applied it to my home heating, that would be $2,000 a month just to heat my home. And so uh, 
we have to be careful about that. And there are things that we can do to protect ourselves. Uh, okay, so so break it down a bit more simply. I'm going to ask you some questions from a non-sort of savvy mind here. So we talk about renewables and everything, and I'm a believer that, well, it seems like, you know, the industry is kind of organically heading that way in some direction, lots of R&D being put into it. I'm totally, you know, fine with that. I mean, the free market's dictating that. I'm a little uncomfortable with the government talking about, as Trudeau does, I got to phase out the oil sands, and they're just tossing so much money into it and sort of forcing it by government fiat. But then I guess one can still shrug and say, well, it's just one sector. It's just a few billion here and there. But you're actually saying no, this sort of this all in on on sort of climate policies and pushing this sector is in fact having distortionary effects beyond that sector. And that the fact that we are pushing so much for this uh, climate economic issues and climate financing, that that is actually fueling, uh, you know, this cost of living crisis. Absolutely. And and so, I mean, I, I think that that we can still take an aggressive approach dealing with climate change, but just, just take a different approach than what's being done now rather than attacking the supply side. So you've got um, increased regulation and protesting that's scuttling um, pipeline and infrastructure um, at, on purpose. And so as a result, um, you have, at, at, and at the same time, sorry, you have uh, ESG and, and capital uh, from pension plans and endowments moving capital outside of uh, resource oil and gas resource development. And, and so you've got a mass undercapitalized oil and gas sector um, globally that is certainly not going to be putting that money back in the ground because there just isn't the capital to do it. And so these companies are taking cash flow and buying back stock and paying down debt, which in some cases it can do that within four years. So the return on investment from deploying it uh, through financial engineering is much more attractive than putting it in the ground. And so as a result, um, again, you have 85% of the global energy needs being supplied by oil and gas. And, and as a result, it doesn't take a, a couple of, you know, it doesn't take very many barrels to swing the price uh, dramatic, dramatically higher. And we're seeing that right now. And so, you know, as a as an individual or a consumer, when your power prices and gas and gasoline prices and home heating prices, natural gas go through the roof, um, you, you're not really going to care about where that's coming from, whether it's from renewables or, you know, from wind or solar. You're just going to look at your bill and say, oh, my God, what's what's right. happening here? And so, yes, we do need to make some serious changes in regards to the infrastructure and and how we uh, consume absolutely but uh, the way of going about it by attacking the supply side is is outright dangerous and we saw that in the us with biden i mean he's implemented a number of policies anti-fracking anti-drilling policies and as a result now he's going to opec asking opec to increase production rather than the shale producers uh domestically and so and in europe you have uh europeans held hostage by gazprom and the russians with Nord Stream 2. And, and as a result, you know, you're seeing what's happening there. And so we need to take a different approach, uh, an approach that will get us to net zero, but at the same time, isn't going to uh, really hurt the middle class and low income. Is that approach just letting the free market do its thing? Because there's obviously people out there who want to go in the direction of green revolution or what have you. So, well, there you go. The consumer uh, you know, asks for what they want. They get what they want. Money talks. And, and there you go. We don't necessarily need all these sort of international agreements and deals that are basically pushing us, you know, sometimes the way they talk about it, pushing us by gunpoint to do these things. So 
we need to change consumer behavior. And the best way to, to scale out is through cost and convenience. And so um, electric vehicles, for example, are a, a good longer term solution. Um, however, they're very expensive and they're not very convenient. And so, and, and we don't have the infrastructure to support it. So, you know, when you had the rollout of the iPhone, um, you had the internet and the infrastructure already built out and it was expensive, but, you know, not inaffordable. And it was a game changer because all of a sudden you had all of this power and convenience at your fingertips. You could do all of these amazing things. And so we need to find a way to do the same thing with electric vehicles. And, and we need to change cons uh, consumption patterns. And that's going to be tough now with COVID. Um, getting, for example, more people to take public transit, which I'm a huge uh, uh, proponent of, and using uh, said public transit and converting it to electric is, again, outstanding. Um, but how are we going to get people on buses when we have, we, we're having a tough time getting people vaccinated and, 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 and getting people feeling comfortable going back in public transit again? So we've had some challenges but, you know, you know, the approach we need to take is, you know, how do we uh, change consumption patterns instead of attacking oil and gas supply? Now, Martin, when you talk about a cost of living crisis, I also mentioned in the opening those people who have lost their livelihoods, the people who have lost their life savings. I know there's been data out that shows that it, it's not a, a sizable percentage of the Canadian population who is in that situation. There was a lot of doom and gloom headlines early. And when you're told, you know, don't go to work and so forth, first lockdown, that was really scary. It's, it's I guess, nice to know that this is not a, a, a sizable percentage of the population in this situation, but it is still a percentage of the population. There is still a, a, a cohort of people out there, a large number of people out there who have been left behind and who I feel like are still going to be left behind. Yeah, and we saw that in the election. Um, the Liberals, and, and I'm, I'm trying to leave partisan out of it, but the Liberals led with an agenda of climate change versus cost of living, right. and they got reelected hmm. in in big cities like GTA and Vancouver, where there is a, a serious cost of living crisis. So that tells me that the majority are so focused on real estate and driving real estate higher and having policies will, will, that will actually make the cost of living worse for younger people. And you know, you, that's a serious problem because the next generation are, are going to be the innovators, the disruptors. They're gonna enable us to be um, competitive on the global scale to increase our level of productivity. And when you have a situation where um, they can make uh, 25 to 50% more income by moving to Denver or Austin, Texas, and have a house that's half the price, they're going to they're gonna do that. They're going to take it under serious consideration. So we have the real risk of losing, um, losing young people and the investment for the future for the sake of, of investing in a non-producing asset like residential real estate. Uh, that's crazy. And we're allowing it to spiral out of control. Now, it's a real tough problem and I don't have any solutions and that's a, that's a tough thing to do um, uh, from uh, a government policy standpoint, but it's one that certainly has to be recognized. Are we just addicted to this cheap debt right now? Because as I'm sure you know well, in, in Vancouver and Toronto and other cities, it's it's the big conversation in all the papers and the glossy magazines and neighbors. They're just, oh, did you see what that house went for? Oh, did you see what that one went for? And then, of course, my parents and in-laws, they'll tell me stories about 18% interest rate that they paid a number of years ago, a couple decades ago. 
But meanwhile, people in my age category, when they sit down for beer, they go, I can't believe I locked in at 3.7. I'm such a fool. Why didn't I could have locked in at 3.1? I mean, we're almost kind of fighting over table scraps compared to how things used to be and, and potentially, I guess, how they could become. Yeah. And so one of the things that we have to be cognizant of, everyone's saying that, hey, look, uh, governments are different than households because they don't have to pay that. Right, debt, right. Yeah. I mean, or economists look at uh, academic economists primarily will say, hey, our, our, our debt servicing costs are so low. But when you combine household and government provincial debt in this country, uh, we're right behind Japan and we're actually worse than Greece. So we ha- we've gone all in on leverage. Now, the problem is, is that the Bank of Canada um, is going to be very reluctant from raising interest rates because that's really going to hurt uh, the economy, given how we've gone all in on levered real estate. And, and it's also going to hurt the Bank of Canada because they're going to have to rely on actual buyers, not the Bank of Canada, printing money and buying uh, their debt to support the, the largest deficit in the OECD. And so it creates a real problem. Now, the issue is, is that if you look at what's happened in Brazil, um, is they've their currency was devaluing. And so they had, they had no choice but to raise interest rates because inflation went to 9%. And they raise interest rates to 5% and it's wreaked havoc on their economy. And so that is a concern for Canada is if we lose control over uh, the currency and oil is not there this time around to provide a backstop, then the Bank of Canada may not have any choice but to raise interest rates to support the dollar. And as a result, that's going to cause a lot of damage for those fourth mortgage people here (laughs) that are larger than first time home buyers who are buying real estate. And so um, we're walking a very fine line here, and I don't know which way it's going to go, but as a, uh, a wealth advisor to, to families, we say, hey, look, why don't you take steps to protect yourself? Why don't you reduce your leverage if you have an opportunity to, or lock in that leverage, like you said, at a really low interest rate, and, and look at ways of, of diversifying your portfolio. Maybe start taking some of that money off the table on real estate and start looking at hedging yourself by investing in energy materials um, and, and commodities, for example. And, and, and then at a very simplistic level, do what I did. Uh, I locked in my, my natural gas and power rates for five years. I've never done that before. And so, and if I'm wrong, I can, you know, I can, I can do some changes there, but it's not going to cost me anything versus if, if I'm right and I didn't hedge myself. Now, you're talking about taking a very balanced and measured approach to investing in your future, but what we've also seen since the pandemic is a whole new category of these cowboy investors. There's this new website, a new platform out called Robinhood that got very popular. Uh, lots of headlines out there, people wondering what's going on here, where young people are are tossing a few thousand dollars here and there, or, or more than that money that they, they have but probably shouldn't have or probably shouldn't be spending that way. They're going all in and wild on these random stocks that, that they probably don't even know what the stocks actually are, and then they meet on these online forums, they say bye, 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 and they kind of you know, pump it all up in a way that is, I guess, completely, you know, within the law for people to rally behind these stocks in ways that seem totally disconnected from the underlying fundamentals. What's going on there? Is that a thing that's still happening? Or was that just okay, these these kids, their universities in lockdown, and they just want to have some fun with their 500 bucks? There's always been that side of the market. Um, and, and, and throughout history. Right. And you know, before these uh, meme stocks came out, I mean, there was marijuana, for example, and mm. how it's going to change 
change the world. Valuations were, were, were completely unreasonable. So, and, and, and today you've got meme stocks, you've got clean tech stocks that are, are you've got um, electric vehicle companies that haven't even produced a, produce anything that are large, any automobiles that are larger, some of the main manufacturers. And so you always have those segments of the market. And, 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 you know, that's, that's no different than going to the casino and bidding on red or black. And, and, and if you happen to get, you know, red, right. A number of times you think that you've got it figured out until you don't (laughs) until something happens that you, you lose your money. And so the house typically wins because you tip it, you don't know when to get out. And the longer you play, the greater chance of you losing and, and, and coming out worse or for wear. And so um, time is a great equalizer on when it comes to investing in those, those sorts of things. Now, on the other side, there is a positive to it because it does encourage um, some innovation. And, you know, we're getting blockchain that's come out of this. You've got digital currencies that are really interesting. Um, again, very speculative, but um, I think that that, that we're, they're onto something there, and you've got clean technology that's really interesting. So um, you're getting all that speculative money that's driving uh, some of this innovation, some of which will stick around. Um, but as an investor, um, I don't call that investing. That's more speculating than anything else. Do you find the very kind of nature of the economy may be set to shift in Canada? I mean, we talk about people making these wild investments and buys and in green energy and putting tons of money into it and so forth. And then at the same time, we're also talking about people who are having trouble affording meat because of inflation and the price is going up. And, and I almost feel like we're talking like Russian plutocracy territory here. I mean, I'm being very uh, exaggerating. It, it, that's obviously not the situation we're in in Canada, but you see beginning signs of a further divide. I mean, when people basically talk about the split between the rich and poor, or perhaps you can categorize it another way. Yeah, and so uh, fortunately for a lot of younger people, they've got they got mom and dad who have real estate, <laughs> and and so you know they can they can help. Um, in, in some in some areas like Vancouver, they can't because it's just it's just gotten right. so ridiculous. Um, so for, for the younger people, in regards to but you know you're not going to want to live at home to your forty. Um, <laughs> you, you would think <laughs> most not, yeah. Uh, well, I got a 16 and a 13 year old and, you know, when they hit 20, I'm turning off the internet in the house and you know, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that'll be a motivator, but all kidding aside. Um, so that, that is, uh, you, you know, for, for those who have mom and dad or grandparents who have exposure in real estate through Gen X or baby boomers, that's okay. But for those who don't, or even immigrants coming into the country, it's going to be real, cha- really challenging uh, for them to to build something, um, especially when it comes to some of the anti uh, uh, small business policy that we've seen implemented hmm. with calling them tax cheats and and not allowing for intergenerational transfers, not allowing for dividends um, to flow through to spouses who are both putting capital in. Um, and so there's been an attack on small business. And then you know the the nail in the coffin was COVID. And the lockdown that really impacted these small businesses at the same time, Costco was allowed to, and Walmart were allowed to have open doors, and and that's very troubling. And so, and, and immigrants typically have come in and started businesses that have have grown tremendously and and hired lots of people, and 
And, and that's going to be a challenge going forward. And so we need to find ways to um, increase the, level, the opportunities for, especially now, where you've got work from home and technology like Shopify that's done phenomenal. We need to find ways to encourage more of that um, so that um, young people and, and, and new people to this country can, can really uh, innovate and grow and, 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 and transform this country. And, and that's a real challenge when you don't have that opportunity to, to get out of break that poverty cycle. And I'll add to this is that um, typically in the past, you would go to university uh, to break that or send your kids to university to break that cycle. Right. And now kids are, are graduating from university and there's no jobs. And, and so we need to address that as well. How, which, how are we going to deal with poverty? How are we going to create opportunities for young people to, to get out of their situation. Martin, I remember over a year ago, during the first lockdown, or as we were coming out of the first lockdown, there's a lot of questions about, okay, our small businesses, they're gonna be decimated, but then some people pushed back and they said, well, look, no, really the companies that are gonna go under, the, the stores that are gonna close, those are the ones they were just hanging on anyway. I mean, this is really just what's pushing them over the edge. We're gonna see a period of, of, really this is a period of creative destruction where yes, unfortunately people are gonna lose out, but then there's all these opportunities, these empty, you know, empty physical uh, storefronts and locations, and there's gonna be all this money that's lying dormant and people are just going to get out and they're going to start doing amazing creative things and we're going to see this boom unlike never before and, and there was a lot of talk about that a year ago and and yes you're seeing some things open but i gotta say by and large martin that's not happening right now no it isn't and it's actually quite cruel to say that because um you know if you have businesses and i was a, a business owner and we sold uh, our firm into wellington altus uh which has been really good for us um, and you need size and scale in this market environment um, because the regulatory and the, and the compliance and all of the red tape uh, has increased dramatically, not just not just in the financial industry, it's across the board. And so we've become a nation of oligopolies. And, and so all we're going to do is further uh, increase the level of consolidation. And we're seeing that in oil and gas. We're seeing that in the financial services. We've seen that in telecom. And that's terrible because... Um, from the innovator standpoint, because I mean, and the small business standpoint, because that's that's the future. They like to say that we're going to challenge the status quo, and to see businesses shut down because of lockdowns is not a, a, a cleaning out of inefficiencies. It's right. just pure outright awfulness. <laughs> it's the right. word I only think to describe it. And so, um, looking at at is that going to change? Well, okay, you've got massive increases in labor costs and labor shortages. So if you're a restaurant and you want to start up a creative restaurant, you can't find workers to work in that restaurant, right? And you don't know if you're going to get shut down again. Right. Then you got supply chain issues. You can't even buy a mountain bike. So like, for example, there was in Banff, uh, like boots in the ground examples, there's a neat little bike store out there and they're not a bike store anymore. They're doing bike servicing because they can't get bikes because the big bike stores in Calgary have them all. And that's terrible because now you got a small business guy who, or, or, or a woman that 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 was you know uh, doing a, a, a unique service to local residents in Banff, and then you've got the cost of those of all of these uh, supply chain issues and are going to get it passed along. They can only pass it along to the consumers so much because they can't compete against the big uh, box outlets like Costco, whose model is to um, to provide. Uh, these uh, provide the, the, these goods at 
or at, at their cost and they make all their money off of memberships. And so how are you going to compete against that? And so, no, I don't think we're going to see that transformation like you just described. In what way do you think the response to whatever is going on right now is going to be an organic one? And in which way is it going to be a managed one? One when government attempts to direct it, take it by the horns, lead it in a direction. Because, you know, to get edgy here, I know we're not supposed to use these phrases, but the Bank of Canada, they put out a couple documents talking about the Great Reset and how they see that, you know, now is an opportunity to sort of harness what's going on. Just before the election, the Liberal government quietly announced something called a just transition, which is their program to, well, yeah, to phase out the oil sands, to do what you were talking about, to basically micromanage uh, the phasing out of oil, of oil and gas and the introduction of, of their more favored uh, green companies and technologies. I mean, how do we how do we make these things happen in a way that is is consistent with what the businesses, what the consumers, what the people want? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm in favor of I like open source. I like it led from 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 people on the ground. Right. Um, that's that's where you're going to get the most e- efficient change. Right, rather than top down, um, in our company Wellington um, Altus, uh, everything is open source. So the best ideas come from those in the front lines, and it and it works its way up to the top. And as a result, we could be highly disruptive, and 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 we're seeing that in our growth. And the same thing in in any other industry. Um, I mean, you want to encourage that. You want to uh, remove the barriers for that, rather than saying we're going to tell you where we're going to go. And so we've got this whole build back better agenda that, hey, we're going to transform our economies based on the way we see it going, right? And that's going to be a really tough thing to do. And you're going to get a whole bunch of unattended consequences. Whereas if you say, hey, our main goal is to increase innovation, disruption, and to increase the level of productivity so we can compete on a global scale. How do we do that? And consult with those on the front lines and get their ideas and then make it really easy for them to do it themselves rather than spending trillion printing money and spending billions of dollars or trillions in the US to direct it a certain way, you're going to get a lot of inefficiencies. You look at Canada, we had this massive infrastructure fund and it's been a complete gong show. They haven't, they haven't spent anywhere near the money that they were going to spend and where they spent it, we have no idea what it looks like because there's been no transparency. And so um, there's a balance between free market and, and government intervention, ab- absolutely, we have to strike that balance. But having a top-down lead is going to lead to all kinds of unintended consequences. And we saw that in 2008 financial crisis in the U.S. And I think that there's a potential to see something uh, along the same lines along with an energy crisis if we continue down this path. Well, again, let me use extreme examples here, just how things can go when you, you know, in an exaggerated way. I mean, that is the history of the 20th century. That's why that stuff they did in Eastern Europe from, you know, the, the, the sort of early and middle part of it, they don't do it anymore because that stuff basically led to poverty for most people, aside from the few people who did actually flourish from it. So I find there's a supreme arrogance from, you know, however smart the Bank of Canada governor is, or the deputy minister, the finance minister, what have you, how can they micromanage the transportation logistics industry when there are people who have 30 years experience in transportation logistics and the people in government do not? You need to start listening more than talking. And, and and we're just we're seeing more of that of that level of, of parenting where we know and, and we're <laughs> going to tell you exactly how things are. And the more they've gone down that path, the more removed they are from society. And so 
Um, unfortunately, I mean, there's a lot of uh, really good people in academia, academia doing some good things, but there are also some not so uh, many good things happening because you have- You're being very uh, polite. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you've got a, a nice tenured position and your pension plan is indexed against inflation. You're kind of living in a vacuum. And, and then you're advising government on policy um, that has nothing to do, it has no impact on, on your own life. And so, um, so when I'm talking about government, they should be listening to a whole wide range of sources and not just confirmation bias. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I mean, there's, there are extremes. You've got the Fraser Institute on the other side. Um, why not listen to them? Why not listen, listen to both sides and, and gather as much information as possible and start by asking, how am I wrong? That's the, that's the best way of dealing with these things. I'm always asking myself as a portfolio manager, how am I wrong? Tell me how I'm wrong. And I'm going to seek out information that's going to tell me if I'm wrong. And I'm going to try and objectively as, po as much as possible, try and take that side and say, okay, does it have merit? Is there facts? Or is it just a narrative, right? And people like narratives. And narratives are okay in the near term, but they'd be catastrophic in the longer term. Speaking of narratives, though, I want to lay out a scenario for you, get your thoughts on it, because you talked about the intergenerational wealth transfer and how some people are able to get support from their parents. When I think of, of that generation of parents, those baby boomers, you know, you had people who entered the workforce post-1945, and, and what they were able to do, many of them, was you work a job, generally you didn't need a university education for it, some had, some did not. They worked that job for, for 30 years. That job enabled one person working, one parent to work, to both buy a home and then a little later on, buy a cottage. Some of them could retire in their late 50s after getting their 30 years in and had a defined benefit pension. Every single thing that I just said there, that's done. That's yes. not happening anymore. I mean, we have here in Toronto, as, as you noted, you'll have two individuals, you'll have two spouses who are both professionals uh, they've gone to university. They're probably still paying off uh, some of their student loans. They cannot afford a house. They're not buying a cottage. And when are they retiring? They don't have a set pension. What's going on here with this with this incredible generational difference? Yeah, so um, we have to adapt. Um, we have to look at different ways of doing things than the way of the past. Because And, and this is where, as a parent, um, we, we have to do we have to learn different parenting skills that we that we we were taught from our parents when it comes to new technology primarily and so for example um i have no problem with my kids if they want to go into the trades for example um i mean plumbers and electricians make more than lawyers now right. trust me i know i just got some work done on plumbing work done in my basement and and so you can't disrupt a plumber how are you going to have that automated it's not going to happen. Right. And so um, there's, you know, looking at your career path is, is the first place that you want to start to, to, to evaluate. Um, Google, for example, has a six month program where you pay 50 bucks a month. And when you're done, they count it equivalent to a four years undergrad in computing science degree. And Apple and others, Microsoft. Sorry, what? Say that again. I've never heard of that before. <laughs> Spell that Google out again. Has a six, yeah, Google has a six month course you can take. I think it's 50 or $60 US a month. At the end of that four months, Google and I think Microsoft and others will consider that equivalent to a four-year undergrad in computing science. For you to work for Google, they will basically recognize yeah. that as a BA. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and so, yet there are other people who are paying, I don't know what it is in Canada, it's a lot less than the US. There's people paying $6,000 a year for that and they're doing it for four years. Well, or more than that, uh, when you count your everything else, you're not making an income. And, and I mean, you, you can get out of school at $40,000 in debt and you know somebody who's taking a six month course gets the job ahead of you. And, and so, I mean, again, I'm think we've got to think differently. We've got to think about, and, and when people say, well, my kid's not going to take a six-month course. It's ridiculous. You need to get that undergrad degree. And, and that's a whole different mindset. And then you have to take a look at living and mobility of living and work from home and, and, and starting your own business, like, you know, using tools like Shopify and getting out and hustling and, and you know, these looking at things like, uh, NFTs and and you know I have a, a client that is a, a a world class artist and she's just done some phenomenal work and she's getting done a lot of research on NFTs and she's NFTing her non fungible tokens um, some of her artwork and she gets a royalty on that artwork as it gets purchased indefinitely and so uh, we have to think about how we're going to make our money and then we also think have to think differently how we're going to live our lives. And where are we going to live? And so with mobility of labor, I wouldn't live in, I mean, I love Toronto, great city. Um, I wouldn't live there. Um, I would move to, I love Calgary because I love outdoor living. But um, if I wanted to find a similar city in the U.S., I could do so and make, you know, twice or 50% more money and be able to buy a house and work from there and maybe even work for a Canadian company down there. And so we have to think differently and take advantage of the connectivity and the ecosystem that's been developed. The old style of working for the same company for 30 years and buying that house and, and cottage, that's no longer the case. Okay, you're, you're talking about really, when you say doing these innovative ways uh, to make your income, you're talking predominantly about the knowledge economy, about the creative class. And there's a lot of questions about what, how do we strike the balance there? Because you know we still need we still need the food, we still need the clothes. You mentioned the plumber who's actually doing pretty well uh, with their income. Then there's conversations about onshoring, whether or not it's more in the bombastic way Donald Trump talked about it, just bringing back uh, manufacturing by hook or crook or, or tariffs against China or what have you, or doing more you know more nuanced approaches to onshoring, bringing manufacturing back to Ontario. Let's start making those cars here again. Is there still a conversation to be had there, or no. are those days numbered? Are they gone? No, we're thinking in the past. We're, th we're thinking. We're thinking. Of, I mean, China, for example, is is reshaping its whole economy, and it's going through some troubles now. But it, it, it's. Rec it, I mean, that's that's the benefit of being a state controlled is that it, it can direct it the way it wants to. And if anybody who disagrees, well, we'll leave it at that. Yeah, too <laughs> but, bad. But. But, you know, they're going to try and focus on their own internal economy rather than servicing other countries. Now, do we want to create that kind of, of environment? Um, maybe in some areas, if we can implement uh, artificial intelligence and ro robotics, can we do that? Do we have the ability to do that? No. I mean, we have University of Alberta, which is ranked top five or top three in the world for artificial intelligence research. And name an AI company in Edmonton, Alberta. There's none. So we need to start looking at ways of capturing the R&D that we've done. Unfortunately, we've been in un we've underinvested in the last five years in R&D dramatically. But you know, how do we kickstart that? And how do we leverage that? And and, and instead of trying to focus on onshoring, let's just focus on R&D and converting that into uh, manufacturing from automation. And that's not going to create uh, union jobs. It's going to create technology and efficiency. And enable us to 
to, to generate cash flow and growth that will drive our economy. Um, but we need to find other ways of uh, offsetting labor and helping transform people. Some of the same things that I just told you about is, is redirecting labor towards areas that are going to be in demand. Okay, let me try and I'll move away from the cars, but you earlier pointed out that there is a great demand for bicycles in Banff right now and other communities and cities in that part of Canada. And actually, I've heard similar stories in Toronto. So we've got this demand. Okay, I, I want this. I want this thing that needs to be built to be manufactured. I know you're saying China is saying, okay, well, let's not continually be the supplier of cheap goods for the world. Let's find different ways to service our own economy. Where do we build these bicycles or do we just build them at such a high price point that it's a boutique uh, uh, manufacturer? It's a thousand dollar bicycle built in Banff. I mean, how, how, how do you solve that uh, supply demand issue? Oh, okay. I have no idea. Quick, quick 30 that. seconds. No, yeah, <laughs> Answer no. the bicycle supply chain question. Go. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a tough one. It really is. Um, you know, you need to source materials and... Yeah. You know, it, it's it's that one's going to be really tough, and in in, uh, in any industry. But again, we have to think about it from uh, scale and convenience, and so you have to be able to have size in order to and efficiencies, and and um, and, and utilize those efficiencies so that you can scale it out, and you need cost and convenience, and so you need to have lower costs. And how are we going to do that um, if we're not? Uh, a, uh, we have a lower productivity rate than the U.S., for example. Right. We need to maybe start there. And then we need to um, make it convenient. And, and, and so those, those are the, that's in any sort of focus in any business. It's cost and convenience are, are the two biggest things. And people will pay more if they get more convenience, right? right, right. And, and, and you get away from, um, you get away from uh, low-cost manufacturing, which is democratized and commoditized, and then you're a price taker. Whereas if you can offer something that's unique and very convenient, um, then people will pay more money. And so I think people are going back to the holistic, especially with uh, COVID, and you look, go back to your bike example, people pay a little bit more to get that nice personal level of service. And you're seeing that in bike shops here in Calgary, for example, where people are extremely loyal to a bike shop because not necessarily because of the pricing, but more so on the convenience and the level of service that they're offering. And I think Canadians uh, are, are known for our, our great personalities. So why don't we leverage that and offer world-class service? And there you go. Great point. Martin, this has been such a great conversation, so wide-reaching. Before we go, I got to ask you, in your capacity as a portfolio manager, as a columnist, people reach out, they ask you for advice. You get a, a regular guy come up to you, regular income, regular line of work, regular amount of savings. And he says, Martin, what's going on right now? What do I do now? Um, there's a time uh, and a place for leverage. And, um, and make sure there's good, good leverage and bad leverage. Um, make sure you've got your, a financial plan that you know the inflows and outflows of your money. That's very important. And there are some tools online and even some of the banks will implement that into your own banking, but get a good picture, overall financial picture of, of your cash flow, what's going in and what's going out and make sure there's more coming in than going out. And if you do want to lock in some of these low rates and deploy that leverage effectively, um, be careful about that, but there are opportunities for that. Um, and, and just, you know, take that diversified approach. Uh, to everything and, and try not to swing for the fence. 
when you try and, and make a, a quick buck, uh, it tends to be a quick loss. So keep that in mind. And so just getting a good picture of where you're at. And then if there is, uh, from a lifestyle change, uh, opportunities to increase the cash flows in versus out by moving and looking at opportunities, then think differently. Uh, think outside the box. Don't be scared of taking risk um, when it can improve your financial situation. Martin Pelletier, your portfolio manager with TriVest Wealth, regular columnist at Financial Post. Great conversation. Thanks for stopping by. You betcha. Take care. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.